everybody. Thanks again for downloading our content. I am Jake Wiskirchen, your host, and I'm going to take a sabbatical for a few weeks, so you're going to hear the same exact introduction over the next few podcasts, but I promise they're all good. They're actually a reboot of something that we did back in uh, December of 2018 and January of 2019, where we did a six-part series on emotional functioning. So I take the 10 core emotions as studied by Carol Izzard. That's uh, two R's and two L's and Carol, I-Z-A-R-D, Izzard, if you want to look him up. And it's from the book that he wrote called The Psychology of Emotions. And I take these uh, 10 emotions, two per episode, and try to compare and contrast them and go a little bit deeper into what they're function is in our brain. So I hope you enjoy it. This is uh, this is going to be a five-part or six-part series, I should say. But alongside this, I invite you to pay attention to the Zephyr Wellness accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, because we're going to be posting videos about the individual emotions as they go through. And so you're, you're going to get a video overview if you want, if you follow that. And they'll, they'll also be housed on YouTube as well as this podcast. So feel free to share this stuff around. I think it's great. I think emotional functioning is something that should be taught in all schools. Personally, if I had my uh, magic wand, I would wave it over all of kindergarten through 12th education and teach it throughout, but specifically in the freshman uh, high school health curriculum that is um, universally required. We have to we have to study lots of things about health in our ninth grade year and emotional functioning, I think, should be one of them, and I think it should be this model, personally. I, I, I study this stuff quite a bit, and I've yet to find such a comprehensive, overarching review of literature as what Izzard did in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So this is why I present it. Um, it. It makes a lot of sense. It's very straightforward. It's empirically based. It's well-researched and studied. And if you want to check out his book, The Psychology of Emotions, it's quite expensive because it's out of print now, but uh, it is very, very good. Um, and if not, just listen to me because I've uh, done what I think is a decent enough job in distilling it down into some digestible pieces for you. And then you can go apply that in your own life. So Enjoy the series, and if you hear my uh, voice repeated over the next few episodes with some repeat content from about three years ago, two, two and a half years ago, don't be surprised. I am just taking a break because I need one. In the meantime, if you need to check in on your emotional functioning or your mental health, go take a free and anonymous mental health uh, exam. Not an exam. <laughs> what do we call these things? Um, survey. Not a survey. Jeez. Uh, screening. Screening. That's the word I'm looking for there. Uh, losing my mind these days talking about mental health and I lose my own mind. Uh, take a free and anonymous mental health screening at WTTA.org slash love. That's walk the talk America.org. And you can click the, the thing all around the website. Uh, that uh, organization is something I do in my free time. Uh, really, really uh, almost more of a full-time gig now where we're trying to bring mental health treatment and care and uh, personal well-being to the firearms community. And that would be people who use firearms in their daily lives for work or hobbyists or collectors, whatnot, because historically firearms owners have been suspicious of getting their mental health tended to for a whole bunch of reasons. Some of them legitimate, some of them uh, perceived. And uh the flip side of that coin is to also make our mental health community of clinicians savvy and competent in understanding what firearms culture is like. So there's lots of resources on the site. We continue to build our organization, and I'm very proud of the work that we're doing. But one of the major things we do is go offer these free and anonymous mental health screening tools that are um, 
hosted by Mental Health America. And you can check out mentalhealthamerica.net for more on them if you'd like. But in the meantime, get a, get a screening. Get yourself taken care of. Um, there are two in Spanish, the anxiety and the depression one, but I think there's 13 or 14 screenings overall. So check it out and share with a friend. Also, if you haven't, check out Audible. Audible uh, kicks us a few bucks every time somebody signs up for a a uh, free 30-day trial at their website. And if you use audibletrial.com slash noggin notes, that's how we uh, we get our little kickback, which is great because it helps to uh, offset some of the costs. Turns out it's really expensive to host a podcast for three and a half years. And now Noggin Notes has three podcasts under the same brand. So there's this Noggin Notes, and then there's Noggin Notes Africa and Noggin Notes Cambodia, all with exceptional content. And I'm very, very proud to be affiliated with that too. Safiso, our founder, has done an amazing job hustling and working really hard to get great content creators and um, and the hosts have done a great job getting guests so uh, share this stuff around and let's make the world a better place I'll see you guys all in, uh, in a few weeks hey welcome back listening audience this is shame and guilt and um, not no this isn't shame and guilt this is a podcast about shame and guilt if you tuned in and uh, heard me say that and you expected to be shamed and guilted it probably sounded a little bit like a Monty Python sketch no I'm sorry anger is down the hallway Beratement is uh, right next door. <laughs> this is shame and guilt. Uh, sorry, that was that was funny to me. And if you're into Monty Python, you probably understand the joke. And if you're not, I'm just going to move on. But uh, I'm going to talk about shame and guilt today. There are two emotions that are very discreet, one to the next. This is a, a, one of the parts. This is part three in a, in a series that I'm doing. Um, there are ten core emotions that we have in our brain, as researched by a guy named Carol Izzard, who studied this for many, many years. And um, I'm doing them in pairs because I, I think that in pairs uh, they they um, link well together, and shame and guilt certainly link well because as you'll come to find out, one leads to the other. Um, I'm doing this in the context of understanding that society is now rapidly pushing us towards something that vaguely looks like a shame-free society where no one's allowed to feel bad about anything. And I think that's remarkably dangerous from a developmental, evolutionary, and neurological standpoint. And I'll get into that in a minute, but let me just uh, touch on a few things here. One is that when we go advocate for accountability, um, oftentimes people get demonized for that. They're saying, well, stop, you're you're making, you're making the, the person feel bad about what they did. And that is, that is the function of shame. And again, I'll, I'll explain these deeper in a second. Uh, the second one is, uh, we're getting some, some pushback in our field from really, really well-known and well-liked and super effective, um, published authors and teachers and researchers who are saying that shame is is a bad thing. And uh, Brene Brown being one of them, whom I respect very, very greatly, and I've read a ton of her stuff, is, which is why I can quote her in saying this. I mean, she says that shame is neither helpful nor productive, but Izzard's research says something quite different. Now, I understand where Brene is coming from because she is researching this with people who live in shame. And for those folks who are continually stuck and feeling like they, they're not good enough for anyone, yes, shame, shame in that context is, is neither good nor productive. Uh, or I'm sorry, neither useful nor productive. 
but um, but then there's there's a, a different context here too that we have to consider is the the neurological function of shame. So if you listen to the sadness and anger podcast, um, I I will re- reference that. And if you haven't, I highly recommend that you you actually pause this here and come back and and return to it. So we're only like two two minutes three minutes in. So if you want to pause, go back and listen to the sadness and anger podcast. Um, I'm going to reference sadness right now. So sadness is uh, neurological adaptive function, meaning it tells us, tells us how to adapt to the environment around us in our brains. Its function is to say that we just fail to have our expectations met. So if I have an expectation that doesn't get met, I feel sad. And that expectation can range from very small, like not getting a soda that I want um, at the at the fast food restaurant, which is disappointing, but it's on the sadness continuum. It's a little tiny bit of sadness, all the way up to great anguish or distress or despair. And that would be, say, the sudden unexpected death of a loved one or a pet. I certainly expect my loved one or my pet to live longer than they do, and then suddenly they die. That That's great, great anguish. That's that's super sad. So the sadness continuum is like any other continuum. There's a, there's a little bit, and then there's a whole lot. And mentally, we can we can direct our attention to that and stay stuck in sadness for a long period of time and not get out of it. But neurologically, we know that emotions last only for a few seconds in the brain because the event that triggered them has has gone on and 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 time moves forward. So if we're stuck in any emotion for longer than a few seconds, we have to be mindful of where we're directing our attention and why we're continuing to re-experience this. That all being said, shame then is when we cause sadness upon others. So earlier I I said, you know, people aren't allowed to feel bad about the things that they've done in our society. We're not, we're, we're heading toward this shame free society. I think that's very dangerous because the neurological function of shame is to tell us that we failed to meet someone's expectations. Now, why is this important? Well, as it turns out, there's some, some new anthropological theories that suggest that chroma, I'm sorry, um, homo sapiens have evolved. That's our species. Homo sapiens have evolved and Neanderthals and some other uh, hominids did not evolve simply because our brains, the homo sapien brain, is larger in the limbic area than it is the prefrontal cortex area where the logic and the reason and the rationality uh, exist. The other hominids that had uh, died off, we can tell by their, their skull shape that they had a larger frontal lobe that allowed them to solve problems and and invent tools and um they're they're essentially smarter uh intellectually but they didn't connect as a community because connecting as a community through Izzard's research and some other people's research has uh has been shown to be driven through the limbic system so larger limbic brain in the homo sapiens larger connectivity to community and so goes this anthropological theory that says the reason our species survived is because we hung together in tribes that we're better able to weather the elements, uh, survive through climate change, ward off predators and and attacking uh, hordes and so forth. The Neanderthals, however, because they lived independently and individually, because they were smart enough to do so, didn't need the community and died off. Or so goes the theory. Now, this makes sense to me in real life because if I do something that is shameful, I, I fail to meet somebody's expectations... I let the person down. I cause sadness in somebody else. What then triggers in is guilt in my brain. Neurologically, this is the pattern that, in which it, it goes. So we have shame. Shame says you failed to do something for someone else that they expected you to do. Guilt says go make it right. And that's guilt's adaptive function. It says go make a repair for the thing that you failed to, to do correctly. 
the reason I, I find a shame-free society so dangerous is because if no one's going to make repairs be, for the for the shameful thing that they've done, all we do is end up inflicting pain upon people and then not taking accountability for it. I'm already seeing this. I don't have to speculate about what the outcome is going to be. We can see it all over social media with people firebombing each other from anonymous Twitter egg accounts or commenting randomly in comment threads or lambasting others in um, you know Snapchat or Facebook. I mean, it's, it's really, really toxic. So what you've got is all this pain, 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 sadness being inflicted upon everybody because all you're doing is saying how worthless other people are and you're, you're, you're making this contemptuous, and contempt is another uh, discreet emotion that I'll get into in a different podcast, by the way. But you're making all these contemptuous assertions about people and you're inflicting pain upon them with zero guilt to go along with it. There is no repair. People can just push back from their computers, go about their days, and and you've, you've just left a trail of destruction behind you. This is really bad, and we're seeing an, an emergence of um, you know adolescent and pre-adolescent and preteen suicidality. We're seeing um, depression and anxiety on, among adults who are you know nose down in the in the, the Twitter sphere or in their Instagram accounts. Because they're all surrounded by what I broadly refer to as the toxicity of social media. Now, not all, to, all social media is toxic. However, all social media does provide a comparison. Now, whether or not you're comparing against actual reality or realistic expectations is something different. Remember, in social media, people only post what they want you to see. And usually, people don't post the, the embarrassing moments of their lives that, that make them normal and reasonable human beings. They post the bright, shiny moments, the things that make you wistful and, and yearn for you know their life instead of yours. That can, that can create a tremendous amount of shame because, again, if you're failing to meet the expectations of someone else, be it society, your family, uh, your next-door neighbor, uh, the, the tribe broadly— um, you're going to experience the, the emotion of shame. And here's the real problem with that. There's no guilt to go along with it because there's no way to rectify the, the missed target because there isn't a target. All you see is so-and-so posted that they're at Disneyland. Somebody else posted their European trip. Somebody else posted a job promotion. You see all these positive things, but all you're doing is looking at your life going, I don't have that. And you don't even know what the target is. So you end up feeling bad. You slip into some depression maybe or you have some anxiety about not being where you think you should be. And that's a completely irrational form of shame. When you don't know what the expectation is and you can't do anything to fix it, that's irrational shame. In the second half of this podcast, I'm going to after the break, I'm going to talk about um, the shame guilt treadmill. But for now, I want to I want to retreat just a little bit and talk about the idea of shame as it's effective within the community of the tribe. So, think back to like say forty thousand years ago. Yeah, you, you know, just think back to it. Like we all were in existence forty thousand years ago. But um, if we were all cavemen and cave cave ladies back, um, you know, forty or fifty thousand years ago, in tribes roaming the earth, we would be relying on each other's resources to survive the conditions, the elements, the environment, whatever. So I have different resources than you do, than your neighbor does, than your coworker does. And we would all hang together in this tribe and we would pull our weight in different areas. So if, for example, I'm the, I'm the hunter and it's my job to go hunt down a gazelle for dinner and I fail to do so. And I come back and it's getting dark and everyone's hungry. And they, you know, everybody looks at me and says, Jake, where's the gazelle? We need to eat. I will experience the emotion of shame. 
that emotion then should trip in something called guilt that says, hey, Jake, go make it right. Because if you don't make it right, you're going to get kicked out of the tribe. And you don't survive if you get kicked out of the tribe. You will die, just like all the other hominids died. They didn't survive. They didn't evolve. So the shame and guilt there is very quite functional. Um, and opposite what um, Brene Brown is saying, where there, it's, it's, there is no use or, or, um, or, or productivity to shame, I believe that there is. I believe that based on Izzard's research, there is a usefulness to shame. It's to keep me in the tribe. That is, of course, if I actually like my tribe, if I find my tribe worthwhile and valuable. Now, if I don't, that's a different subject, and we'll, we'll cover that after the break. But for now, what I need to do is I need to go out and find something to eat because if I continually de- uh, let the tribe down, eventually they're just going to find another hunter because they all need to eat. They need their resources managed and taken care of. So the emotion of, sh- of shame is quite useful, and we want to pay attention to it. What we don't want to do is we want we don't want to slip into what's called shame backward. Now, there's shame forward, which I just described, which is useful and productive and helps us navigate social circumstances and uh, keep from making the same mistakes over and over again, right? But then there's shame backward. And this is this is a distinction that uh, Christian Conti makes. And if you want to check him out, ChristianConti.com, uh, sorry, drdrchristianconti.com. The difference between shame forward and shame backward is shame forward is productive. It's temporary. It's fleeting. You you uh, you fail to, to do something for someone. You go make it right, and then they acknowledge that, and you move forward. Uh, broadly, we could call that the process of forgiveness, I suppose. Um, and, and a real simple example might be uh, somebody has an expectation like not getting the back of their shoe stepped on as you leave the, the room. That's an unconscious expectation. But it's still an expectation nonetheless. So if you both get up and you walk out and you step on the back of their shoe and give them a flat tire, they turn around and go, hey, you stepped on my shoe. And now what should happen is instant shame. Whoops, I, I, I'm sorry is the forgiveness. That's the guilt, right? How can I make it up to you? Now, hopefully they say, no big deal. It's just the back of my shoe. But if they say, well, you know, it really hurt the back of my heel. Um, you can buy me a Coke. All right, all right. There's there's a way to make the repair for stepping on the back of the shoe, which is the failure to meet the expectation that you know they didn't want their shoe stepped on, and then you can both go about your your business. Hopefully that moves forward. That's shame shame forward. Uh, you you get you get informed about the expectation that was not met. The guilt says go make it right. You bought the coke. You shake hands. Life is good. Shame backward is when that person refuses to let you out of that. And they continue to tell you what a no good so and so you are, and how stupid you are for stepping on the back of their shoe, and how you're you're a worthless human being. If you do that over time, a person can start to live in shame. And the uh, the research done by uh, David Hawkins, it's a Sir, Sir David Hawkins, M.D., a Ph.D. Also, uh, if you want to read his work, it's it's really fabulous stuff. Uh, I recommend the book uh, Power Versus Force, but but any of his stuff is very good. What, what Hawkins found out is, is in, um, in articulating his levels of consciousness, what he said was that shame is, is the lowest level of consciousness or the lowest level of awareness that we have. And if you're living in shame, you're basically one step above death. And so people who live in shame, as Christian Conti says, tend to act out of that shame. And I would take that a step further and say that people who live in any emotion tend to act out of that emotion. They don't act out of reason and rationality. So if you're living in anxiety, you're acting out of anxiety. If you're living in anger, you're acting out of anger. If you're living in shame, you're acting out of shame. 
Now, why is this important? Well, if you're living in shame and you don't believe that you're very good at anything, and you don't believe that you matter and your, your life is more or less worthless and you might as well be dead because you're only one step above death anyway, then there's very little reason to keep you from inflicting pain upon others as well as yourself. Now, let's say that you're hanging on for, for dear life and you, you would never, ever, ever kill yourself. You're just going to continue to live in shame. Well, that can turn very quickly into inflicting pain upon others. And if you're already in shame, then, then everybody else might as well be in shame too. So goes the logic. And that's shame backwards. And that's what Brene Brown is speaking to. There are a lot of people in this world, and I may be talking to some of them right now, who are living in that shame place where over years and years perhaps, maybe a series of people have told you that you're not any good, that you're worthless, that you don't matter, that you're never going to amount to anything. Well, I'm here to tell you that those are lies. And that you can stand up under that stuff today if you'd like to. And what you can do to, do to move to that spot is realize that you're living in an emotional state that is lasting longer than a few seconds. And it has no basis in reality. What people have told you, if it's grounded in reality and is actually shame-provoking, should have a path to reconciliation. That would be the guilt. And there's a way to do that. If you're not able to do that... We have a problem, and I'll address that problem after we come back. So I'm going to take a little break right now, and I'll come back after the break, and I'll explain the shame-guilt treadmill. This is the Noggin Notes podcast, and I'm Jake. Okay, we're back, and we're talking about shame and guilt, and I left you all hanging, uh, left you all hanging with the idea and the concept of the shame-guilt treadmill. I was talking about shame backwards and how living in shame uh, gets you to act out of shame, then you inflict a lot of pain and sadness and hurt upon other people because you're, you're, you yourself are only one step above death, so you know who cares about everybody else, right? Well, here's how people get there. I mentioned that sometimes you know people will walk through their lives for years and years and years hearing lots and lots of voices tell them that they're no good and that they, that they're, they suck, right? Here's how you get on the shame-guilt treadmill. Somebody tells you you failed, and then you look, guilt, the neurological function of guilt kicks in and says, oh, shoot, I, I failed. I need to make this right because I want to win the approval of the, the tribe or my family or the person who's telling me this. Picture a little kid who gets told over and over that he's no good and that he's terrible at everything. He's still going to have the guilt wheel spinning in his head that's squirting out guilt juice in his brain, for lack of a better term. It says, make it right, make it right, make it right. No matter how, now imagine that little kid, no matter how many times he apologizes, no matter how many times he cleans up whatever he broke, no matter how many times he tries really hard, uh, cries, makes amends, tries to make things better, his parents don't let him. Let's pretend that those parents just absolutely do not give him a path to reconciling whatever bad thing he did, whether it was knocking over the juice or pinching the dog or, or whatever it was. Now let's pretend that this kid grows up in that household through his toddler years, his childhood, his, his early teens, adolescence, and then he graduates high school and, and moves on. By the time he gets to that point, he's going to be a shell of himself thinking that he can never hit the moving target that's being placed in front of him. In other words, there is no expectation to meet, but he keeps missing it. So therefore, he's on the shame-guilt treadmill. Now, politely, and to, with apologies to the Catholic Church and all my Catholic friends, I was, I was raised Catholic, I, I know that there's a quote-unquote Catholic guilt that goes along with this, and it's, and it's capital C Catholic, because largely Roman Catholicism evolved about, out of a deed-based or performance-based um, faith structure or, um, or theology. 
yes, there's a there's a faith involved, but there's also deeds to go along with it, such as saying Hail Marys, um, you know, praying to the Rosary and tithing, and by these, you know, giving back to the community, volunteer service, attending church, all this stuff. And through this path, if you if you did enough, then then you would enter God's grace, and God would would accept you, and so forth. Except you never could, because simultaneous to that message is the message that all humans are sinners, and they all fall short of the grace of God. But keep trying, and keep trying, and keep trying. Um, that's a, a shame guilt treadmill that we often call Catholic guilt, where you say you're going to fall short of the grace of God, um, and you're never going to get there. But keep trying. That's essentially what this this young boy did in growing up in his parents' household, where he kept missing the mark, and they said, you're not good enough, but keep trying, and we'll never let you be good enough. Now, psychologically, that's also called a double bind, and it can make people go crazy if there are enough double binds over a long period of time and they're, and they're strong enough. I'm going to do a different podcast on double binds because it's a very deep topic, and it deserves its own look. But for now, just keep in mind the shame-guilt treadmill. He feels ashamed because he missed he missed the target somehow. And then guilt kicks in and says, go make it right. But he can't make it right because his parents won't let him. Or if they do, they only let him a little bit, but they never really fully embrace him and they don't really fully forgive him. He's on that treadmill, and that treadmill could send him into feeling really bad about himself such that he takes it into every relationship he ever enters. Business, romantic, interpersonal, um, even even self-endeavors like hobbies. He's never going to believe that he's ever good enough because he's never been allowed to reconcile the failing. So quotes like, you know, I think Thomas Edison once said it took him, you know, a thousand failures before he got his first light bulb or something like that. Those types of quotes will be lost on a person of this nature because he doesn't believe that, that a thousand is even possible. It's just that you'll never even get to one. And so why, why not, why not, why even try? So th- these people tend to not fulfill their potential either if they're living in shame. And it's really important to know that. So I left off the break by talking about how you have to be rational about your shame. If you look at it, you know, you say, Jake, you talked in the, uh, in the introduction about how, you know, you can't be rational and emotional at the same time. Yes, I know that. That's why I'm inviting you to be rational about your, your emotions. If you feel something, try to investigate it. Pull yourself into your prefrontal cortex and investigate why you're feeling what you're feeling. If you look at the shame and you're saying, man, my mom's really making me feel bad about this, you have to evaluate it and say, what did I, what did I fail to do? And if the answer isn't obvious or your mom won't give you one because she just gives you a phrase like, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you, (laughs) then you can reasonably say that there's no path by which you can reconcile it. You can't make a repair. There's, there's no guilt there. Now, if you say, well, you know, you returned my car, uh, with the gas tank empty. Well, there's the, the reasonable path is go fill the gas tank and then that the guilt and the shame should be alleviated. Now, if you fill the gas tank, come back, and you're still getting the finger wagged at you, now you're on the shame-guilt treadmill. At that point, you have a decision to make. And the decision is whether or not that relationship is worth enduring that. And this is really important, and it's very, very challenging because we have a lot of societal expectations placed upon us, like you don't break up with your parents, you don't discard your family members, you don't leave and neglect your siblings, but sometimes you do. And that's because it's not healthy to continue to be around them, or at least not healthy to continue to put yourself in a position to receive that stuff. And that's where non-attachment comes in. I talk a lot about non-attachment and being emotionally non-attached specifically. So if you're emotionally non-attached, what you can do is you you can borrow the car, 
take it for a drive, do your errands, come back with the tank full, and they go, I can't believe you. You arrived five minutes later than you said you would. Well, that's an opportunity to go, this doesn't matter to me, and I'm not going to get into an argument, and I'm not going to let you shame me over five minutes. I'm a grown man borrowing your car because I'm in town for the weekend. You know, um, But there are some people out there who are, they themselves are living in shame, so they act out of that shame, and they throw the shame onto other people so that they drag them down too. Because remember, people living in shame are said to be one step above death. So if they're already there, misery loves company it's just easier to drag folks down to their level and that comes through the finger wagging and the and the shame shame i'm sorry the shaming and the blame shifting and and the guilt laying so if you say you know i I keep getting guilted by my parents or you know my mom always makes me feel guilty or my sister always makes me feel guilty that's an opportunity for you to look at it rationally and go is there a way that i can reconcile this and make a repair for the thing that i failed to to perform or the, the expectation of fail to meet. And if there isn't one, then it's time to evaluate the relationship in itself. Now, before we go, I want to return to a topic I teased in the very beginning, and that was the uh, firebombing on social media and uh, the fact that we're heading toward a shame-free society. So we want to acknowledge that the shame is a neurological function. In other words, the shame forward is very valuable and necessary. It's necessary for our evolution as human beings. We did not get here because we didn't have shame or we didn't feel it or we denied it somehow. Remember, the, the, the limbic system is going to keep functioning whether or not we want it to. So despite all the messaging from media and social media and pop psychology that says, don't make people feel bad or they're going to be wounded for life or something, uh, we definitely want to go the other direction. Absolutely, we make people feel bad if they fail to meet our expectations. We just don't want to hammer them over it. We want it appropriate, and we want it fleeting, and we want it temporary. So we've got a lot of, you know, don't tell Susie she's wrong because she'll get upset, or, you know, go easy on him, he's just a boy, or kids will be kids. Uh, they've all replaced strict consequences for undesirable behaviors. So instead of che- teaching children not to offend others, what we've actually done is we've protected them from feeling shame for for offending others. In turn, we fail to educate the recipients of the sadness that sadness can be tolerated and sometimes life is unfair. And it's okay to communicate that sadness because in communicating your sadness, what you're saying is, you didn't meet my expectation. Then shame should trigger in the person who failed to meet the expectation. And then guilt triggers after that. And then a repair is made and life moves forward. Let's take a playground example. If I'm playing on the playground and I'm six years old and Sally comes and throws dirt in my face, I want to cry and let her know that that was wrong. I'm really scared as an adult, as a, as a, as a parent that what we're doing is we're shutting down that and saying, you know, don't make Sally feel bad for throwing the dirt or don't make Timmy feel bad for getting his math problem wrong or his spelling sheet incorrect. There are correct ways to do things. There are right and wrong ways to behave. And the tribe will figure it out and they will let you know. And if we've artificially constructed this in the classroom such that the kids get out into the real world and don't know how to tolerate their emotions, we got a real big problem on our hands because then nobody knows how to communicate. Nobody knows how to reconcile. Nobody knows how to negotiate or even let go or make amends or forgive or even just tolerate their own distress. Look, no one likes pain, but pain is necessary for growth. Shielding our children from the neurologically necessary shame-guilt process will harm them down the road, and they'll fail to integrate, their relationships will become disposable, and they'll lack intimacy and compassion. We don't want to ignore shame. We want to use it appropriately. You know, you don't shame backwards. 
Um, but you make sure to educate along the way. That's, that's real discipline. That is real parenting. Now, parents, I implore you not to spare your children sadness, wailing, and protestations when you hold them accountable. Of course, this means that you need to understand and tolerate your emotions in order to ride through that turbulence that they're throwing at you. But for the sake of their own personal development and for those they touch across society, it has to be done. So the message of, you know, life should always be pain-free affects both the sufferer and the person who inflicted the suffering, both negatively. So here's the really wacky thing, though. Because of technological advances in things like grocery shopping, we (laughs) don't actually have to interact with the public anymore at all if we don't want to. I mean, we've got Antifa wearing masks and harming people with no penalty, you know, and little Timmy blasting his enemies on Twitter without identifying himself. Pain is created and accountability is absent, um, so the pain continues over and over and over again. Um, But the apologies and the reconciliation and repairs don't exist, and it's it's actually getting worse. When When I mentioned the grocery shopping, if I don't want to interact with other people, I can have groceries delivered to my doorstep, or I can just swing by the grocery store and pick them up because I ordered them through the app on my phone. I literally don't have to interact with people anymore. I think that's super dangerous. Never in our history of humankind across a couple million years has that ever happened. And and just now in the last, uh, what, five years, it's accelerated to the point where we can isolate and don't have to inter- interact as a community. It's a really dangerous path, and and I, I caution everybody who's listening to this podcast, if you think that's the way to go, I urge you not to. I urge you to, to engage, to turn toward others, and if you're one of those people living in sadness or living in shame, evaluate your expectations and see what you can do about aligning them with reality, because I promise you that there's there's more to life than living in misery. It doesn't make any sense. It's not... It's not adaptive. It, it doesn't. It doesn't fit with nature, and I just encourage everybody. Um, as as I wrap this up, I just realized I'm getting a little long here. Um, please, please, please. If you notice that you're feeling these feelings, and you're feeling them in what seems to be an overabundance compared to maybe your neighbors, examine them from a from a critical thinking perspective. Put on your detective cap and say, what expectation? Am I failing to meet with this person or these people or just internally? Because I, I can imagine some of you guys, I've been doing this long enough to know, some of you guys are probably hearing this going, yeah, but the expectation comes from myself. I would argue that and say that no, it doesn't, but that's a, also another podcast. But either way, examine it and see if the expectation is even realistic. If it's not realistic, I invite you to let it go and be non-attached to that too. It's possible that these expectations served you for a long period of time, and now they simply don't. And that's fine too. We all evolve, we all move forward, and life changes. I invite you to change with it, and I invite you to be non-attached. As far as shame and guilt go, they're neither good nor bad. They're simply informative, so don't judge them. Now, if you happen to be living in them, and it's not working for you, maybe it's time to let go of that. Because in that case, it probably is bad. Let's all become more knowledgeable about our brains and the messages that they send us so that we don't also wind up isolated thinking that we don't need each other. We already have evidence that that tactic doesn't work. It comes in the form of the Neanderthals. So on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, I thank you all for listening. Uh, again, my name is Jake Wiskirchen. If you want to reach out to us, info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. I wish you great mental wellness. We'll see you again next week.